0: Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peak and welcome to episode 442 of Her. This is the podcast where you're going to hear the truth about her mind, her body, her life and her happiness through all seasons. What? Not just one season, all seasons. What's the secret sauce? You're going to hear. Before we begin, just know that this episode is made possible by our wonderful sponsors at Solaray Vitamins, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y Vitamins. Now, since we're going to be talking about your brain and your mood and taking care of yourself, run on over to Solaray and have a little look at, oh my goodness, the sharp Mind Brand. And these really involve herbals, vitamins, and minerals that help to be able to optimize mental focus. And as well, how about that mood too? But you can be hearing more about that from our wonderful expert. So run on over to solaray.com and discover what you as a woman, as part of the her audience, can learn about optimizing your own health and wellness mind and body. And here's your first reminder to click on iTunes after this episode. We love your feedback. So you'll get another reminder later on. All right. It's time for Her. Her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about Her. Oh, I cannot tell you how happy i am to bring back my absolutely wonderful dear dear friend and colleague dr norman rosenthal he is internationally renowned as a psychiatrist researcher and best-selling author and honestly he's known for his original description of seasonal affective disorder and research in disorders of mood and biological rhythms. You've read him in the New York Times and so many publications. You probably have his books. And here's the great news, speaking of books, he's got a new one. Just when you think, oh my gosh, what else can he do to be able to enlighten us And make us wiser and take better care of ourselves. He has just authored Defeating SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, A Guide to Health and Happiness Through All Seasons. What I love about the title is a little double entendre, Defeating Sad, right? So you don't want to be sad, you want to be happy. So A Guide to Health and Happiness Through All Seasons. Norm Welcome back to the Herb Podcast. Wonderful to be here again. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I think uh, half my audience just wanted to hear your South African accent again, because it's just so beautiful. I mean, just I don't care. Just say Mary had a little lamb for the next half hour, and we're good. (laughs) It works for me. All right, now I have in my hot little hands the brand new book that Dr. Rosenthal has authored. And it begins with one of my absolutely most favorite quotes. And it's from Albert Camus. In the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. And that makes me happy. For it says that no matter how hard the world pushes against me, within me, there's something stronger, something better pushing right back. What a beautiful way to start this book. Now, we all know that you have originated seasonal affective disorder. You and I both met at the National Institutes of Health. You were in the National Institute of Mental Health and I was upstairs in endocrinology and you and I collaborated as well. And I was fascinated. With your brilliant research. What I find really interesting is you're not just talking about winter now, because, you know, of course, we all have the book Winter Blues that you wrote, but now you're talking about through all seasons. Tell me and tell the audience why you wrote this book. Well,
1: the first thing was it was necessary. The old stuff that had been written was no longer up to date. But more important than that, my thinking had undergone a turnaround towards what you're reading over here. It was no longer like therapy for winter depression. It was, we're changing with the seasons. And as we change, challenges arise, sometimes in some people, sometimes in others, and sometimes in everyone. So for example, we're just coming out of the challenge, or not quite out of it for many of the country, of summer, because summer has been unseasonably hot and long and dangerous actually for some people. I heard a tragic story of a little girl left in a car who perished. You know, people need to understand that we human beings have got limits to what we can tolerate. And part of those limits affect our mood and our view of the world and our capacity to survive. And so that summer, that has to be taken seriously. Now we're going to be moving as we sit here into autumn. And autumn brings its own challenges. I'm already, as a very seasonally sensitive person, I'm already feeling the lack of morning light as the days get shorter, even though it's summer outside. So, those are just a couple of examples. I won't take you through the whole year. That's what the book is all about. And I'm happy to talk about any aspect of it. But the bigger point is this isn't just winter depression, this is the whole year. And all the challenges that it brings. How common is seasonal affective disorder? If we're talking about the winter kind of seasonal affective disorder, we estimate 5% of the U.S. population. So that's really tens of millions of people. And for every one of them, there are three who have it in a milder form. Because those 5% are people who are actually having functional impairment as a result of their winter depression. But imagine that you lose your luster, you lose your sparkle, you lose your creativity. There are no official diagnostic titles for these entities, but that really cuts into your capacity to enjoy your life and to be productive. So for every one of those 5%, there are another three that have it to a lesser degree. So one in five people is adversely affected by the winter.
0: Wow. All right. So what about the summer? Got all that sun out there. And is it possible to feel down during the summertime?
1: Well, you know, even though we described, my colleagues and I described the summer version of seasonal affective disorder shortly after the winter version, that means in the, in the 1980s. So it's been around for a long time. It's only emerged as a thing, to use that terrible expression. It's only emerged as a thing, you know, in the last couple of years as the summers have become so devastating. And but it is common. We don't have numbers on it, but the articles that we've seen in the newspaper on Summer SAD have just signaled to us that it's now reaching the consciousness of a very wide swath of the country. And I think insofar as the weather patterns are changing so radically from year to year, you can see it, I would predict that the frequency and prevalence of Somerset will also be changing. It's a moving demographic and we don't have precise numbers, but it's really common and it's touched a nerve, especially this year.
0: Are the symptoms about the same? They actually are
1: not. There is quite a contrast. They they share certain elements. They are predictable even though their season is different. You can predict their coming. You can predict when they're going usually. And they both are depression. So people feel down in the dumps and sad and not optimistic about the future. Also, their functioning is impaired. They just can't get things done. They can't keep up their relationships, because to keep up a relationship requires a certain energy of engagement that you have to be able to muster. And in both summer and winter sad, you have that problem. But that's where they diverge. In winter, people oversleep, overeat, crave sweets and starches, gain weight, they're sluggish. Summer people are very different. They're irritable, they tend to lose weight, they eat less, they have insomnia, not oversleeping. So there's a different biology going on in
0: these two groups. That's so fascinating. I think people out there didn't realize there was actually another variation on the theme that involved the lightest, warmest month of the year or months of the year, And I didn't fully grasp early on when I first heard about this that the symptoms are so different. Now, if you look at all four seasons, what was it that got you on the track when you wrote this book to look at all four seasons? Why didn't you just do winter and summer? What goes on in spring? and autumn as well, that feeds into this whole narrative on trying to maintain a seasonal happiness?
1: Well, I think it's the growing awareness that different people have different times of year that present special challenges for them. So take the very famous opening line of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, April is the cruelest month. Reading lilacs from the dead land. So the mixture of the resurgence of life against the land that is still dead is replicated in the mind of the poet where you feel, I want to move forward. I want to get back on track. I want to keep going with my life, but I'm being held back. Being held back because I'm not out of winter. My, My winter mind has not packed up and left yet. I'm still there, but I want to move forward, mixing memory and desire, the memory that holds me back, the desire that moves me forward. There's a tension. So paradoxically, and what may not be known to a lot of people, is that the peak time for suicide is not actually the winter when so many people are down. It's the spring and summer.
0: What? Yet, Wait a minute. I, tell us more about that. Well, you can actually,
1: these are CDC statistics. They are right out there. And I give in the book an example of two people with winter depression. It was very, very severe. And both were seriously suicidal. These were patients of mine. They made attempts to try to kill themselves. The one, the one woman tried to hang herself. And the one man tried to shoot himself, and he was actually staring down a barrel of a gun. But neither of them could kind of muster up the energy, the drive, the whatever it is that says, do it. They just didn't do it. And the the woman in particular was very poignant because she said, the next day the sun was shining, and I felt better. And I thought to myself, imagine if you'd done this yesterday you wouldn't be here to see the sun come up. So paradoxically, the lack of impetus in the winter depressed people actually works in their favor. Now, the summer depressed people, if you, and we haven't looked at a cohort of spring depressors, but the summer people are beginning to get depressed in spring, If you look at them with their irritability and their anxiety and their depression, they are going to have more suicidal thoughts. So that is something that is also, you know, documented. And so spring is actually a tricky season. Some people say the allergies to the emerging pollens could be a factor, who knows, but it is not an innocuous season, even though... For some people, for Tennyson, as opposed to T.S. Eliot, in spring, a young man's fancies likely turn to thoughts of love. That's a different kind of spring for a different kind of person. Then you go through the summer, which we've discussed, and then you're into the autumn. Now, autumn, a lot of people are very anxious because they realize that winter's on its way. So there are special things that we need to do to prepare for winter, not just winterize our houses, but sort of winterize our minds, as it were. You know, just as you're going to sort of turn off the faucets that are going to burst and cause leaks or insulate the windows or whatever it is you do for your house, you're going to have to do things to prepare yourself for the lack of light. Maybe, for example, clean the windows. Cut the bushes and hedges from around the windows to let more light in. That's just a simple example. So that's why I thought we needed to go through the whole year in order to understand what the seasons do to the human mind and how we can offset that.
0: Well, okay. So this is the Her podcast. Let's talk about gender specificity. What's up with? any differences in this entire experience between men and women?
1: Well, women are affected by three or four to one compared with men. And when we drill down and look at how that plays out, we see that before puberty, there is no male-female difference. But after puberty, you get this three, four to one ratio. So something about the menstrual cycle, the fertility aspect or the fertility phase of women is what renders people susceptible to seasonal influences. And then on the other side of the menstrual story, when women go into menopause, the male-female difference disappears and men and women are kind of equal. So I think what's happening is that, from an evolutionary point of view, the fertility cycle and the giving birth cycle has gotten locked on to the seasons. And there's probably an extremely good evolutionary reason for that. Because throughout nature, and we're not just talking about human beings, but sheep, cattle, hamsters, every, any creatures need to adapt their fertility rhythms to the rhythms of the seasons because you want to give birth to the young when there's a lot of food around, where you've got plenty to give them to eat, and these species is more likely to survive. So based on that and what the, all the intermediaries are, we have some suspicion, but that's, I think, the evolutionary reason why women in their fertile years are more susceptible to these changes in mood and behavior.
0: Wow. Okay. So, you know, I'm I'm all about women's hormonal journey here. And so I can imagine, I'm just going to throw that up to you. Let's see what you think. That as you look at women coursing through the perimenopause, beginning as early as the late 30s, but typically in the early 40s, where... There is a spike in anxiety and panic disorder because of the slow and gradual but relentless weaning off of estrogen and progesterone. And and so that it's a real roller coaster ride of changes in hormones until the age of roughly 52 plus or minus when the cessation of the menstrual cycle takes place. And then there's an adaptation period right after that, as the body says, "Okay, no more menstrual cycles." How do we settle down here? Then there's that huge, long one would hope if you have a good health span postmenopausal period. So, would a woman who is PMSing, she has premenstrual syndrome, right? Would she be at greater vulnerability? to these changes that take place throughout the seasons? I'm just throwing that out to you.
1: It's a great question. And we have seen a lot of PMS in our SAD people, in our SAD women. And some of these women, their PMS gets worse in the wintertime. And my colleague, Dr. Barbara Perry, who is a professor of psychiatry at San Diego, UCSD, has actually studied this and found that some of the treatments for SAD also work for PMS.
0: Oh, how interesting. Kind of a twofer.
1: Yeah, there's a connection there. You are intuitively correct in pursuing it.
0: Excellent. One of the things you introduced me to was a very novel therapy that you absolutely embraced for sad in general, and that was light therapy. I will never forget the day that I took the elevator down to your office at the in the clinical center from mine. And I entered your office for the first time, having heard all about you. And my mentor said, let's collaborate with him on some studies with seasonal affective disorder. Now walk in your office and the damn thing is wall to wall light boxes. And these, I mean, good Lord. Now I'm pretty sensitive to light boxes. Thank heavens. But when I went in there and they were all on, I mean, I think I was up for about, I don't know, week and a half after that. And I cleaned all my closets and washed the car. And All right. So it was fascinating to me, and I quickly learned everything I could at your knees, you know, when you, you were the mentor and teacher, and now I have my little light box. It's just a little small guy that I utilize when we do have those, you know, dark days, and I would like to get an uplifting mood. Now, tell us about the genesis of this light therapy, because when we're talking about women who may be more vulnerable and sensitive to the seasonal changes as they relate to their mood, etc., on top of the fact that they're also going through hormonal changes as well, maybe it helps to use a light box. I don't know. Let's start first with what is the light box? Well, it often looks like a box. And it's got lights
1: embedded in it with a screen in front of it so that you don't have to stare at the naked light bulbs. And it's conveniently arrayed in a way that is easily accessed. For example, one very handy model, which I have in front of me right now, is sitting on the desktop, elevated a little on some spindly legs, and pointing towards me. It's now in an off position because if it were on, this is what I would look like.
0: Whoa, all right. Okay, (laughs) we're awake now.
1: (laughs) So it's in an off position, but I've already sat in front of it for 10, 15 minutes this morning, because I'm already feeling the loss of morning light in the changing season. So it's a box with light, but there are many different kinds. And one thing that I've actually done in my new book is to explain which lights I prefer, actually mention brands. I always resisted that in the past. I didn't want to put my thumb on the scale for this produ- this manufacturer versus that one. But now I thought, listen, let me be helpful to the reader and be specific. So I've done that. And I should say I don't get any money from any of these light box companies, Unfortunately, but that's a choice that I've made.
0: I can't tell you how helpful that is, Norm, because if someone Googles that, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, there's just overwhelming amount of garbage out there. And you honestly, we as people who really are seeking help in this sector want to hear from an expert. Someone who has the level of credibility and scholarly background that you have will believe you before we believe anyone else. And this is why when you did that in the book, I was just celebrating because I've been asked this question a million times too, and I get tired of answering. I'd like to just say, hey, go buy Defeating Sad. Just buy the book. It's all written there and you know, take it from there. And I appreciated your giving me sort of individual referral to specific brands because I've been extremely loyal to those, which helped me tremendously. People out there who are listening to us, there are just, you know, a huge landscape of options out there. There's ones you can use for travel. I have, all right, small ones for your desk, larger one, whatever you want to do, however you want to play it, depending upon your own needs. So if you buy Dr. Rosenthal's newest book, Defeating Sad, then by definition, you'll be able to get all of this information delivered to you. So can you just give us a, just a little kind of hint of, of the science of how this works? Why is the light working? Absolutely.
1: And I also want to mention that I love listening to books and podcasts. Because I'm walking a lot of the time, and that's one of the things I recommend, exercise and walking. And that takes time, fast walking, running, whatever you do. It takes time, and so my time from reading is being reduced. So this book is available on Audible, and I thought, you know, I've had other books, and they've been recorded by various people, but I wanted to record this one myself because I wanted people to have the experience as though they're right here in my office with me, hearing my opinion straight from my mouth. So I hope that that element is gonna work.
0: I think your narrating your book, as you know I've narrate all mine, is just like sitting down for tea with you. You know, here's your tea, sit down, relax, let's talk. Because that's the way the audiobook sounds, you know, you, you're welcoming, it's a rich, beautiful voice, that's what people want to hear when they're walking their dog, or just kicking back and relaxing and listening to a podcast, because that seems to be the, the medium these days, nobody listens to much of anything else, it's probably just as well, but we won't go there, so that is fabulous, alright, so that's, that's S-A-D, so you've got the light Therapy. Let's go back into the science there. Okay,
1: good. Because I came to Colombia to do my from South Africa to Colombia, New York. I heard about Dr. Fred Goodwin, who was leading one of the groups here at the National Institute of Mental Health. And he had a very innovative group. And one thing that they were working on at the time was the effects of light on the human brain, and specifically the effects of bright light to suppress the nocturnal secretion of the hormone melatonin, which previously had not been known. It had been thought that light suppressed melatonin in animals, but not in humans. And what they were doing wrong was they were not using light that was bright enough, so when I came there, they had just found that bright light was capable of suppressing light in humans, of suppressing melatonin in humans. That opened a door, a Pandora box or whatever you want to call it. It opened a whole vista because melatonin is a hormone secreted by the pineal gland at night. And it has a very important role in translating the season of the year for many different kinds of animals, going all the way from amoebae up to farm animals. So from the simplest one-celled animal to the most complex mammalian species, this secretion of this particular hormone by the pineal has been the conduit of knowing which season of the year it is from a biological point of view. So at that time, more or less, we encountered a few people with marked seasonal rhythms of mood, and the logical question was whether bright light would fix it. We started first with one scientist who'd astutely observed the rhythms in himself, and we exposed him to light when he was depressed, and out he came, and then I said to my colleagues, look, we're not going to have a story unless we recruit a whole population of people who've got this problem. The secret really element here was that I was suffering from the problem myself. And that gave me a perspective that this was not a trivial thing, that this may not be a rare thing, but that we had to go to the media because The physicians and psychiatrists in the area claimed never to have seen it. So we put an article in the newspaper in the Washington Post, where lovely journalists wrote an article on the subject, and we got thousands of responses, written responses from all over the country. There was no internet in those days, no email. We the mail just started coming in, thousands, monotonously describing what has become the syndrome of SAD. And that became the basis for a clinical trial, which we did, and it came out positive, bright light therapy. And unfortunately, it's become abbreviated to BLT, which sounds like something that you might want to eat for lunch. But BLT or bright light therapy became something that was now going to be explored for years to come, and that has currently become a standard treatment, not just for SAD, but here's the kicker. In the book that I've written, Defeating Sad, there are chapters on other uses of bright lights. It can be used for non-seasonal depression. It can be used for people whose Rhythms are abnormal. Late night owls who want to be able to wake up in the morning, peep with jet lag. The potency of light as an agent of change in human beings has now been exploited for multiple reasons, some of which we never even knew existed, like seasonal affective disorder.
0: Wow. I'm kind of blown away because right around 20, uh, I don't know, it was... uh, I'm just thinking about how much science has advanced. So I really got into the circadian rhythm when I met Dr. Satchin Panda at the Salk Institute around 2015. He had written about something referred to as time-restricted eating, which basically is sort of a scientific way of saying, why don't you eat within certain hours and not eat during the other hours. Isn't that what we did as cave people? Just sort of saying, you know, you got up in the morning and you had to forage and hunt and work hard to grab that first meal. And, you know, it's not like you had a refrigerator in the cave. You know, you just, you're on your own and you are happy to really grab one meal a day, blah, blah, blah. Okay. All of a sudden, we started paying attention to a biorhythm, one that is intrinsic in every single human being, and that's circadian rhythm. Now, you're also very heavily invested in biorhythms because what you discovered was something that was so interwoven with the seasons and the changes in circadian. You know, circadian rhythm doesn't change. It's a 24-7 Rhythm that basically syncs with the movement of the earth, and that certainly doesn't change. However, the amount of light you get as the earth rotates is different. So it's going to have some kind of a, a change on your circadian rhythm. So when you're looking at all of this science, where does circadian rhythm figure in?
1: Well, circadian rhythms are present in every cell in the body. There's a clock in every cell, little clock ticking away. There's a clock. I'm reminded of Leonard Cohen saying there's a light in everything. There's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. So there's a clock in every cell, and that's how we keep our body's rhythms. Now, why should we keep our body's rhythms? Why is that advantageous from an evolutionary point of view? Well, to think of easy things... Isn't it better to be sleeping in a cave at night when there's when we wouldn't be able to hunt game anyway because we can't see, and then hunting and gathering out during the day? Now, our biological rhythms are going to tell us when is the time to go to sleep, when is the time to wake up. There's a time for everything under heaven. That's in the Bible. And so it is in every function. And those those same rhythms, which are daily rhythms, circadian means about daily, they then are captured and become also seasonal rhythms. There is also emerging evidence by my colleague, Dr. Thomas Ware, that there are lunar rhythms that can be quite consequential for mood, for menstruation. So the body is a rhythmical organism. The human and animals are are, are rhythmical organisms. The diurnal and nocturnal rhythms are very important. The seasonal rhythms are very important. And now it emerges the lunar rhythms are also significant. So this is how the body becomes most economical. It becomes most efficient. It uses the day, the night, the dark, the light, The presence of food in the environment versus the relative scarcity of winter and so on and so forth. They are crucial survival tools that match the body's rhythms and needs to the
0: external environment. This is so amazing. You know, all of your circadian rhythms, your natural biorhythms, supposed to get some sleep on time. You're supposed to show some level of regularity with certainly sleep, which is going to be huge, as well as eating. What is this 24-7 eating? I don't know. Let's just eat. 10 o'clock at night. Who cares about your hormonal fluctuations with insulin and the rest of it? So this is why I'm going to continue wag my little finger at you to honor the clock. Honor the clock, because circadian rhythm rules. I got to tell you a a story. Did I tell you this, Norm? This was really kind of wild. When I was really diving into circadian rhythm, which is going to be figuring into a book I'm writing right now, which is really fascinating, you know, the Nobel Prize was given out, in 2017. Now I met Sachin Panda in 2015. I was now right into this whole eating as best I could within certain hours, right? And making certain that I did not eat during other hours because it's really, really good for you on for a whole host of reasons, which really contribute to longevity and optimal health. So out comes the Nobel Prize, and it's for the discovery of molecular mechanisms controlling the circadian rhythm. You got my attention, circadian rhythm. So it was given to actually three scientists, as you know very well, and that is two of them were at Brandeis, and one was at Rockefeller, and they looked at what happens when light actually hits your eye. What goes on in your brain, that super chiasmic nucleus, which is sort of, as it were, control central, we found out there isn't one like master clock in your brain. What it is is this bit of a regulator of all of the clocks in all of the cells throughout the body, which is kind of cool. This basically, once again, gave us even a more solid foundation for everything you said, because that light is helping control metabolic processes in every cell of the human body. So honor the light. Suddenly it's like, it's all about the light. But I'll tell you my little side story. It was kind of funny. So I'm writing a piece on circadian rhythm, Right as that Nobel Prize had come out, I was like jumping up and down so happy. Circadian Rhythm was having its moment in the sun. All the chronobiologists around the world are just sort of doing a little happy dance. It was so funny. It was a Friday. I'll never forget it. It was also in August. So it was like a dead month, you know, and you know nobody's doing much of anything. And I decided to just call up to... Michael Rosbosch's, he was one of the uh, Nobel laureates at Brandeis, call up to his lab and just ask a couple quick questions of one of his lab people about the science that he had created. I was going to be happy to get a grad student or one of his guys or gals, right? So I dialed, it was 3 p.m. on a Friday. I'm figuring the only people left in the lab are all the underlings, you know, and and back and forth. Who picks up the damn phone but Dr. Ross Bosch himself? And the reason why I knew it was because I listened to his Nobel lecture, which he gave when he received the award, so I knew his voice. I almost dropped the phone. I'm like, whoa, you know, and then there's this, you know, pregnant silence or like, Dr. Rosbosch? it was really interesting. So I just very quickly, I didn't do the fangirl thing because Nobel laureates never like that. And said, I honor your science. This is so great. My job is to contribute by translating a lot of this pretty hairy science into something that people can really wrap their heads around. Then I just sort of, you know, step back for a second. And I just said I just needed a couple little thoughts here. And he says, I have no problem doing that, Pam. He said, my job is to do the hairy science. He said, your job is to interpret it and good for you. And then he gave me a couple little notes, and I said, thank you very much. And I collapsed after the call. I was like, oh, my God, I just dialed a Nobel laureate. And it was very funny. Every now and then, random things happen like that. But it also told me that maybe, maybe... I'm on the right track here, you know, with this whole biorhythm with circadian rhythm, which is kind of fun. So that's my little story for the day. Now you, you are taking so much of this science and absolutely running with it. And one of the things I so love about your work is that you have an uncanny ability to speak in terms that are welcoming, understandable, accessible to people, because no one wants to read hairy Science, other than you and I as scientists. People want help. So when people read Defeating Seasonal Affective Disorder, A Guide to Health and Happiness Through All Seasons, what is the promise here?
1: what is the hope? The hope is, uh, and thank you, incidentally, for saying that, it comes from 40 plus years of working directly with people and explaining to them in ways that are not only understandable, but comforting what the problems are and what the potential solutions are. As you pointed out, I've written a lot of books, but I wanted this book as I always do with every book, but I wanted this book to have some very special qualities. You've read the opening quote by Albert Camus, and it's a quote full of hope that the winter can come down upon us, but we can fight back. And that's the theme of the book, all the different ways to fight back a combination of everything you can do. It's not a one-trick pony like get a light box and turn it on and call me in the morning. It's a total program. The other thing is, if you look at the dust jacket, it's bright colors. It means you're going to bring brightness into your life. You're not going to be An old book of mine was Winter Blues. It had a dark blue cover. No, that's not where I am right now. Where I am right now is bring color, joy, brightness into every season. The other thing about the book is it's very slender. It only says what's absolutely necessary. People are very busy these days. They haven't got a lot of time to read. And I want to just put in what's absolutely necessary. And at the same time, I want to do it in a way that's really accessible and comforting. In fact, I remember a conversation that you and I had because I've got one chapter involves, or two chapters actually, involve healthy habits. And one healthy habit is managing your diet and your weight. And I know that one thing that I do is I weigh myself every single day. That's just what I do, because I need to know what did I eat yesterday that was good or bad or indifferent, that didn't make a difference. And yet, I know that some people really dread stepping on the scale, and I certainly don't want to traumatize them. So I called you up, and we had a conversation about that one little point. I wanted to get it exactly right. So, that I encouraged people when they didn't feel too stressed to step on the scale at the frequency that's comfortable for them. And at the same time, I said, listen, if this is traumatic, don't make a thing out of it. Discuss it with your doctor and figure out another way to do it. So, there's just one little tiny point in the book, but it was deeply and thoughtfully researched with an absolute expert yourself. And that's how. The book is written with a diligence of getting everything right and the comfort and simplicity of a clinician of four decades.
0: As we're wrapping this up, what I'm thinking about is the fact that, you know, your book is timely because so much has changed. When you reached out to me about that one issue, I said, things have changed. Actually, the population is not as fit as it was decades ago that there are different perceptions of how you actually measure health and well-being and all of that has to be included and integrated into new narratives that are dynamic. They're constantly changing and shifting. I was looking forward to your new book, to be able to see not only how you updated all of the science and the thought and the wisdom and knowledge behind seasonal affective disorder all through the seasons but also how you emphasize that no matter the season you could still develop a way forward to optimize your not just your health and well-being but your happiness and joy to your point during every season of the year, no matter where you live. And I think that was an expansion of your original, very strong foundation. I mean, you've authored more than 300 scholarly articles. You certainly are an international expert on all things seasonal affective disorder. But now to see you move into a place where you're really looking at happiness and joy and fulfillment through all seasons, I thought was just a beautiful evolution of your thought process. Make sense? Yes, you have
1: nailed it. Thank you so much. Uh, that is exactly what I aspire to do and hopefully have succeeded to some degree.
0: All right. So as we are bringing this to a close, I want you to just share one thing, right? You've mentioned walking quite a bit, and I know that this is integral to your life. How important is it to happiness and joy and also to mood and mental health?
1: Well, it's crucial. Walking is crucial, at least some kind of exercise, but walking to me has always been the simplest. It starts when you leave your front door and it's finished when you come back into your house again, so you don't have to go to the swimming pool or the gym or anything. It's right there when you hit the ground outside your front door. You can walk as fast or slow as you want. The outdoor element is extremely important because you're getting the light from the huge dome of the sky. No light box is going to be able to really compete with that if there's any sun out there at all. And so look up at the sky. I mean, not at the sun, but at the sky. Don't sort of muffle your whole face so that it's completely covered, even on a winter's day. And then also, you can vary not only the rate, but you can go up and down hills. And that gives you that intermittent high-intensity exercise that's becoming so much focus of good health. Now, There's so many benefits, it's not even worth listing them all, but you're pointing to your head, which I'm so glad you're doing, because even recently, they looked at people who develop Alzheimer's, and then they analyzed how many steps they did on average per day. And people who did 10,000 a day had a 50% reduction of the development of Alzheimer's over seven or eight years. It's amazing. I mean, it's hard to establish cause and effect because it wasn't an experiment, but you go with the data when you're trying to avoid something as nasty as Alzheimer's. So, and then people who did maybe 5,000 steps, they got maybe a 30 or 40% reduction. So there seems to be a linear relationship between how much we walk, And the health about brain
0: i just think that that's a beautiful way and everyone should know that dr norman rosenthal is one of my neighbors so i'm always over there enjoying his magnificent gardens and then walking with him and i'm going to tell you something you got to keep up with this guy oh my god and i'm an athlete i'm just like oh need a little recovery period after one of those walks with norm to be able to do that mind-body you know, optimization in terms of health and well-being. Norm, I cannot begin to thank you for being on the Herb podcast again. I want everyone out there to know that Defeating SAD and that Seasonal Affective Disorder has just been released. So run on out there. You could do this everywhere, Amazon, the usual places. And also listen to the audio book That Norm has narrated so that you could actually walk with him. There's a great idea. Walk with Norm. You know, that's gonna be a new motto here. And just listen carefully to how you can face every single season with hope, with positive thoughts, and with health benefit. But you gotta plan, you gotta be aware, you have to be knowledgeable. And that's where the book comes in. So, Norm, thank you once again for being on the Herb Podcast.
1: It was just wonderful to talk with you again, as it always is. And congratulations on your podcast and on the 442nd version. Mm -hmm. Keep going strong.
0: Well, yeah, and you get to be number 442 here on this one. Everyone, This is Dr. Norman Rosenthal, the author of Defeating Sad, that seasonal affective disorder, a guide to health and happiness through all seasons. Okay, now everyone quickly run on over to iTunes right now. I'm watching you. I know you're out there. Take a minute to hit iTunes, rate, and review the show because we're going to be picking up all that feedback because we love it. And another major shout out to our sponsor, Solaray Vitamins, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y Vitamins. And that's, again, where you're going to be able to find your multivites. You know you try to get the fruits and vegetables in. It doesn't work. I know, I know, I know. And also, have a little look at some of the nootropics Out there, the sharp mind on all of the products that really help you with things from sleep to mood to energy and focus. So that's Solaray Vitamins, S O L A R A Y Vitamins.com. Oh, this has just been the best episode. Well, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, the host of the Herb Podcast. Please follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at PamPeekMD. Remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes, Radio MD, Spotify, iHeart. I could go on. We're on all the platforms. You will find us and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay well.